and welcome to the latest Scots We Hey podcast. And today I'm joined by writer N.E. Solomons to talk about her first thriller, The Bone Road, which is published on the Polygon imprint of Berlin Books. Hello, Natasha. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. First of all, what can you tell us about The Bone Road? How do you describe it to people? Um, I suppose I'd describe it as a, as a thoughtful thriller, I suppose a thoughtful feminist thriller. Um, I think that's probably the, the way I, I go about describing it. Is that, is that, does that seem right to you? I think that's right, having read it. I think that's a great explanation as well. Um, but, so why did you want to write it? Well, I sort of written sort of under my um, my sort of my usual name, um, sort of Natasha Solomon's quite a lot of sort of historical fiction, and I really love writing historical fiction. But I just I don't know I sort of I wanted to try writing something a bit different, and I had this this mistaken belief that writing a thriller would be easier, right. and I thought. <laughs> Be fine I'll write a thriller I'll, I'll crash one out in a in a few months and it turned out that writing a thriller is much much harder and it took me much much longer so. that's really interesting why did you have the impression that it would be easier less research that kind of thing I don't know um I suppose I had the idea that I could write a sort of a breezy airport thriller and I could, I could just, I could write one of those books because sometimes when you sort of, you go on holiday, those books are kind of fun. And I had ambitions of sort of writing one of those books and I would be able to be uh, sort of, I'd have a, I'd have a very kind of um, sexy pseudonym and that would be great. And I would be able to kind of go in dark glasses and I'd be able to kind of write one of these airport thrillers. That was what my ambition was. And then I discovered that I'm just not, I just couldn't do it. And that whatever I write, I kind of bring this sort of research to it and that the research takes me months and months and months and I get really really absorbed and kind of drawn into it and I find that I just sort of want to sort of tell one of sort of those stories that sort of finds that it needs to be told and it becomes kind of darker and I just I was really frustrated with myself because <laughs> it wasn't the book that I set out to write and it's more drafts of anything that I have written since my first novel, that is more years ago than I care to think about. I was thinking uh, I would never describe it as breezy. No, uh, well, <laughs> never die. Uh, also, it is kind of a historical novel in that, it, but it's very recent European history. That yeah, absolutely. Just... Yeah, and it's sort of got those sort of that sort of dual narrative and. Um, uh, sort of the sort of the sense of um, sort of the past in um, during the Balkans War in the sort of the nineties, and then the sort of almost contemporary narrative um, sort of during sort of 20, 2015, 2016, um, which is sort of almost now, except everybody's phone looks weird, yeah. and um, yeah, so it's sort of and and I think it's also it's it's the dirty secret of literary fiction that 
as long as the characterization is wonderful and that the descriptions are really lyrical, that you can hide um, a little bit of um, plotting um, that isn't quite perfect. And you shouldn't, and it's really lazy, and it should all be edited out, but it's the dirty secret of historical fiction um, or any literary fiction. And I'm not saying that um, I do it or I want to do it, but I think that some it, it, it has been done. And in a great thriller, it can't be done. And it mustn't be done. And so I just, yeah, I said there was just draft after draft after draft. And um, I have a brilliant agent and my husband's another writer. And they just, oh my God, they were just, they were merciless. Just the number of drafts of this thing that, that I did. But I think now, um, after um, many months, um, sort of, um, sort of, of rest and a lot of whiskey I'm kind of I'm like yeah okay this was I'm glad I'm glad that I took as much sort of time and um, now I've recovered from the process. It does sound quite traumatic it's interesting that that relationship because I've worked as an editor for a, for a while and that relationship whoever is telling you uh, well you maybe want to change this and maybe want to change that do you ever feel I mean, how much pushback do you give? You think, well, come on, this is the 10th draft of this or whatever. Uh, we must be getting there sometime soon. Or, or is it a process that actually is quite harmonious? I think it's all about the trust between you and the person who is sort of telling you. And um, I think you have to have absolute trust for the person who's giving you the notes. And ultimately, if a book goes out too soon, and whether it's published too soon or it goes to publishers too soon, that's in nobody's interest because you either get rejections from publishers saying, well, I like this, this and this about it, but this bit of the plot was wonky. Mm -hmm. Or you get readers who are frustrated saying, you know, they were the bones of a great book, but what a waste. And it's a waste of your time. And um, so I think you have to really trust um, your, you know, your agent, um, or your, you know, I mean, I'm married to another writer, and so um, it is a bit of the hive mind, um, and I sort of have to trust, you know, their judgment that this is, this is sort of, this is right, and it can be really painful when you sort of reach that point when you're you're just bored of it, and that's sometimes the time when it's really useful not to be just working on one thing and say, right, do you know what? I am exhausted on this one. Right. Can't do it justice. I have to put it away. Whether for it's a month or even six months, go do the other thing and then come back to it. And it's amazing how re-energized you'll be. And then you can kind of work on it afresh and really, and really see. And suddenly that sort of gnarly plot problem or that character that was just not working. You would have read something, you would have seen something, you would have seen some brilliant show on, on Apple or um, whatever on Hulu, and it will have completely given you another insight um, to sort of go back and rework that, that section. And always reading um, sort of other writers' works and, and it will just open up something else. Um, 
that idea of the book being published or at least being presented at the right time then is a really interesting one because it may be that you haven't had all the outside influences that make it when it, it becomes ready. Yeah, I think so, because sometimes sometimes it's sort of really crude and it's like it's it's a market thing and um, everybody in publishing is is chasing the, the locked room thriller and that's what everyone thinks they want or, you know, everyone's wanting cosy mysteries and, um, you know, great, you know, at the moment there's a big thing about cosy mysteries, I have to say, you know, lovely, it's not my not my thing, I, I'm, I prefer dark and bleak. Um, <laughs> It's just, but that's not to say that it's bad. It's just, it's just not my taste. Um, and it's sort of the, the sort of the, the publishing market kind of gets pulled that way. And sometimes you hit the market at the wrong time. So I think that's that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes it can be, you know, a flaw within your book itself, whether it's just you hit the market with your book at the wrong time because it was, you know, you hadn't done the work. And I think even though I have written more books than I can remember, sometimes we still make mistakes and, you know, you can go out with a book at the wrong time. And um, the joy of when you go out with a book at the right time and it's, you know, it's the right manuscript, the right book, the right moment and everything works. It's like, oh, oh, yes, yeah. this is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And um, and it's really it's really joyful. And, you know, you, you mentioned that you're already a, a successful author and you're also a playwright and you screenwrite and all of different styles. Was writing The Bone Road different in terms of the actual practicalities of writing? Yeah, it was. It felt really different. And I think I was um, really naive in sort of how different it was going to be. And um, just that although it's sort of a character-led piece that just, that whilst constructing a thriller, that the plot, just the sort of the perfection of the plot, the sort of that clockwork structure, just how everything has to work and the intricacies, and that um, I'm about to embark sort of, sort of right now on the edit for another um, sort of work of historical fiction. And although that has thriller elements in, quite sort of intricate thriller elements, in it that the edit of something like the bone road is just you move one cog and then everything else falls apart because it's just the timing has to be so precise and um i find those pieces really really hard to hold in my mind and it's it's yeah it's really, really difficult it's really tricky and um i find that yeah it's really really difficult um, and you mentioned how, you know, you might see uh, a great piece of telly or, or read something elsewhere, which might uh, change the book that's been put aside. Does your other writing do that as well? Do you go and say work on your historical fiction and then something might click for the thriller or and, and vice versa, I suppose? I think that um, I've learned a huge amount through writing The Bone Road and I've really taken um, what I've sort of I've I've learned about how sort of the, the tightness of, of plotting and I've really taken that to um, my historical fiction and I've I really hope that I'm a better writer as a result of writing The Bone Road and that I've sort of I'm a much leaner writer 
and that I hope that there's sort of if there was any sort of self-indulgence before I really hope that it's been absolutely kind of reined in I mean so writing is this sort of I mean, it is this sort of bizarre sort of profession where there's this sort of huge excitement that you kind of you greet a debut, somebody who's new to the profession, and yet one hopes that with the more books you write, that you get better at it, yeah. and um, and yet often kind of unless you're kind of I guess one of the sort of really sort of lucky through a few, or um, particularly it does work often I guess in crime um, that. You don't, your sales don't necessarily increase, but yet somehow you do get better at what you do. Um, but I don't know. I think um, I, I hope that I've I've definitely I've, I've learned a lot from this process. That's a really interesting thought. Um, of course, that like anything, the more you do it, you think the better you get. But there is this almost, um, and it happens in other arts as well, music and stuff, they're looking for the next big thing or the next new thing or whatever that might be. Yeah, so, yeah, and I think um, often it's just like, it's like, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Trying not to get shot, I'm still here. And, um, but yeah, no, I am, and I am still here. And sometimes it's like, it's worth just going, yeah, no, I am, I'm still doing this and I'm feeding my family and here we are. And that's okay. Was that part of the attraction of writing a thriller for the first time, almost reinventing yourself as a writer in some way? Yeah, I think it was. And um, it, it, it was, I wanted to have a go at doing something, doing something new and to sort of try and see, because um, I'd been sort of writing books that were kind of, I guess, too, the extent there was there was a thread connecting them and I wanted to sort of try writing something that was very different um and the bone road is definitely um you know the most different um but then it was sort of whilst it's the most different I've not gone right that's it this is what I do now yeah. I'm just going to write these um these sort of rather dark literary thrillers um i've i think i've taken what um i've learned from it which has been hugely rewarding and invigorating and then i've used that to sort of reinvent this sort of new scene of historical fiction that has become much darker and stranger um and more thriller like but it's not i'm not writing historical crime um but it's it's one has really sort of fed into the other and it's sort of it's been really it has been really interesting um but i think but definitely the bone road was the most um traumatic book to write since my first book which is ironic as well because it's also a book about trauma yeah. um so <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the setting. Why did you put it in the Balkans? Um, it's funny because um, it was an idea that um, my husband and I, because um, we sometimes co-write together um, screenplays, and we sort of talked about this idea sort of years ago. And when we first talked about it, um, 
it was sort of something that was sort of set in any country and sort of any place. And when I then started writing it as a novel rather than as a script, sort of within half an hour, I was like, no, this absolutely has to be rooted. And the only place it can be set is the Balkans. It has to be here because for me, I think it's when something is rooted and that's when it becomes universal and it feels real. And, and I sort of wrote um, most of it, and um, certainly this draft of it sort of during, during lockdown. And I just sort of ended up doing huge amounts of kind of research and reading everything I could about the Balkans conflict, and the Balkans war. And I remember, I mean, I was sort of, I was at school, I was sort of, um, I'm a child of the sort of 80s, 90s. And when I was at school, um, I had a friend whose um, grandparents were refugees mm -hmm. um, from the Balkans. And my sister in her class, she had refugees from, from Bosnia in her class, a bit like my kids now having Ukrainian refugees in their class um, at their school. And, and that sort of, and my grandparents were refugees from Berlin. Right. And I don't know, they just, they never, it never seemed that far away. Yeah. And I think what's been really interesting in the sort of reading, and I'm having to kind of revise um, a lot of the research now um, for the Bone Road for um, various reasons. And I'm reading a lot about the connection between Holocaust survivors and um, survivors of the concentration camps um, in Bosnia. And there just, there seemed to be this connection between sort of the Second World War Jewish survivors and between those particularly of the, the Bosniaks. And I don't know, and I guess I, perhaps my first few books were sort of written about Jewish survivors and it just seemed to be I don't know, it just didn't, it didn't seem far away. It just, there, there felt this kind of, I was really drawn to the, this, this sort of recent trauma that um, sort of had, you know, had happened um, in the 90s. And, um, and that's really interesting you mentioned about uh, refugees over generations, because I think you can't read the book now without thinking about what's happening in Ukraine. Do you see the parallels yeah. there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially with the, in the recent sort of when, when the war um, first started in Ukraine, people kept saying, oh, yes, there's not been a war in Europe since um, the Second World War. And you're thinking the Balkan War, <laughs> there was a war in the 90s. And it's sort of like and that was the problem with the Balkan War. Just it was so easy to people sort of forgot about it at the time when it was going on. And nobody seemed that interested um and apparently one of the reasons that the americans weren't interested was because it was too complicated because it was a war with three sides mm -hmm. wars with two sides are really straightforward and it's one of the reasons that the ukrainian war is so um straightforward because there's goodies and there's baddies and everyone knows that the russians are the baddies and so that's nice and straightforward to follow but the Bosnian 
conflict was so complicated because there were three sides. And that was one of the things that I definitely wanted to make really sort of simple in the book was sort of to have no judgment for the reader was that Heather, mm-hmm. the sort of one of the protagonists going in, that she's not a child of the 90s, she's much younger. And at one point in the book, she doesn't even know which country she's in. And to be honest, she's not that interested. Um, her boyfriend's disappeared and she just wants to know what's happening. And she doesn't really care where she is. She's not that interested. She's interested in it so far as it helps her. And then gradually she gets sort of drawn into the country, to its past and the people. And I didn't want any sort of sense of um, sort of lecturing the reader, but then sort of almost by osmosis to kind of find out a little bit about the, the sort of the history of the Balkans and it just to be there sort of under the surface and this feeling of unease and the sense of kind of um, the past informing the present and us never really being able to get away from it. I think that's exactly what it does. It does, through Heather in particular, it does uh, bring the reader in and a war that probably most, including myself, hadn't thought about for a, for a long time and maybe even considered it being local skirmishes rather than, you know, the, the, the extent that it was. I think that's often how it was portrayed. You know, if you've got countries as big as Ukraine and Russia, people do tend to take notice, but these seem to be, they often were called factions, weren't they? That was the kind of... Yeah, yeah. Factions. And that's exactly what you do as a reader. You 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 get to know and and be reminded in some cases of what exactly went on and how recent it was as well. And I mean, and this, I mean, the scale of death. I mean, it was so horrific. Yeah. And um, and it still has sort of implications today. Um, and and there sort of hasn't been a, a sort of a proper reckoning. Um, and. And it's sort of, I think the difference is that obviously um, neither um, sort of Bosnia nor Serbia um, or Croatia, they weren't nuclear powers. Mm -hmm. So in that way, we could all feel safe and a bit smug as these sort of countries were fighting each other and it was all these civilians dying and we all said how terrible it was, but we felt really safe as we sat back and watched them fight and it was, whether you sort of were calling for one side or the other side and all agreed it was very, very horrible. But we all felt safe back in back in England and Scotland. Mm-hmm. But now with um, Ukraine and Russia, we are all kind of scared. But it's sort of still the same in the sense that it's sort of tens of thousands of people being put through um, a meat grinder. I mean, it's just grim, the scale of human death. Um, and I think in that sense, it's absolutely comparable. And as is our sort of our reluctance to kind of to get involved in the absolute failure of the UN um, and their sort of and the paralysis of the Americans, the EU. I mean, that is totally unchanged. Um, I think the difference probably with the um, the Balkan crisis was that um, the press were able to get much closer and they were on the ground during the Balkan crisis. One of the things I found really 
unnerving and strange has been almost this press blackout um sort of from the ukrainian war that there's been very few images from um places like mariupol we've not seen that much um there was sort of like a few associated press images um whilst with the um bosnian conflict they were there was they were able to sort of embed and get really close to the crisis. And I think that kept the war in people's sort of consciousness and the press sort of played this really sort of close, close role. Um, you sort of understood the role of the journalist um, and that brought with it its own, um, own difficulties, both the kind of obviously the physical danger to the journalist and raised questions that the journalist really struggled with as kind of what's the, what's the sort of moral role of the journalist as sort of observer and somebody who sort of seems to get drawn into the crisis. Yeah, that's true. I mean, war correspondents during the Balkan crisis almost became household names. You know, we were seeing them every night reporting yeah. these things and that just isn't happening uh, at the moment. And, um, and I think that, um, I mean, Ed Vellamy talks about kind of war is where the journalists are and sort of necessarily sort of where they were embedded. So like somebody like Martin Bell, he was very much in Sarajevo. Yep. And so he sort of really, he sort of um, corresponded a lot from Sarajevo and that was his view of the, of, of the crisis. Whilst um, ITN would sort of travel round Bosnia a lot more in the villages and they had a different view. And, um, and so they shaped our view of what the conflict was. Um, and then now with the kind of rolling 24 hour news, it sort of, it becomes this absurdity, um, how, how it happens and kind of, you know, citizen journalists. I mean, what is that? That's just some dude with an iPhone. Exactly. Um, exactly. And it, it doesn't really, what about the analysis? What about the kind of the endless calls, the local contacts, the, um, the discussions and the, the real sort of thoughts behind it, so. So you mentioned uh, the character of Heather. Can we talk yes. a little bit about the two central characters of Heather Bishop and Simo Subotic, if I've said that right? Um, who were they? How were they inspired? You know, who? How did you come to those? Because they're an, a mismatched couple. Well, um, I mean, I think that I've always loved um, those sort of classic um, thrillers. Like one of my favourite films of all time is A Marathon Man. Yeah. Um, you see, it's such a relief. I say Marathon Man and you don't look at me blankly. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic film. And um, and what I love about um, Marathon Man is that it's sort of set up in the beginning that he can do one thing, he can run. And what I hate is in sort of modern, um, whether it's a film or whether it's, um, whether it's a book, and suddenly, at the end, whether it's a girl, whether it's a guy, suddenly they can shoot a gun. Now, if I was given a gun, I would just shoot myself in the foot. And whether that was getting, you know, if I could even get the safety catch off. And I think that um, I, I sort of, we've got too many sort of films where it turns out that your sort of nonchalant hero is a superhero coming out of nowhere. And I really wanted somebody who sort of was ordinary, but could do one thing and was amazing at it. And the thing about Heather is that 
although she's really, really damaged, and in some ways she's a sort of very unreliable witness, narrator, because she's sort of been through this um, horrendous accident, she is an athlete. And a bit like the character um, in Marathon Man, um, she can she can she can ride and more than um spending so she's got this unbelievable stamina because yeah. um sort of understanding so from friends who are cycling journalists is that cyclists just have this sort of proper tall cyclists just have the most remarkable stamina of anybody else and so i just thought that, that would be you know the best character and I'm also just really drawn to the idea of sort of athletes, whether they're um, ballet dancers or um, or even sort of musicians, these people who have one skill and what happens at the end, what happens when you're slightly past it? And again, the trauma of that. So a bit like sort of the trauma, I mean, it's not comparable, but that sort of trauma of what happens when you're one thing and then you become something else, that sort of metamorphosis. Um, I wrote a, another novel um, which had a child prodigy in it, um, but because I'm sort of those sort of really unusual characters and and I love um, I'm like I'm fascinated by choristers as well. You know those um, those sort of young boys who have these remarkable instruments and your instrument is part of you, but you only have it for a few years and then you wake up one day and it's broken and it's gone, and then you never have it again. And um, and what does that do? Your therapy, um, you know, you can go and be a singing teacher, but then you just teach other people who have the thing that you used to have. I mean, I mean, I think that's grim. And so, like those characters really appeal to me. Um, they sort of when you have to undergo this metamorphosis, and you, you have been the best, and yet now you have to become somebody else. And um, and I thought to put her in this really weird situation where she's not just you know some girl on holiday or some woman on holiday um and then turn the sort of volume up on their relationship and where her her boyfriend ryan is also not quite sort of what he seems um that's that idea of the athlete is really interesting because you've already got someone who has um who will not give up They've got that desire yeah. to see things through. That's how you get to become an elite yeah. athlete, is to put, be able to focus. And that's what Heather manages, oh, she's trying to do. She has that in her. Yeah, that sort of total relentlessness. Yeah. And um, and I think with Simo, because um, so many of the sort of, it's, the, the sort of novel moves between sort of Bosnia and Serbska. So, um, after the Dayton Accords at the end of the Balkan War, um, Bosnia, is um, split into two. It's sort of like a donut or or a bagel, where um, you've got in the middle, uh, in the sort of the ring of the the donut, is the um, area where um, the Muslim and the um, Croats or Catholics they sort of they share the sort of the centre of the, the the bagel. And sort of this is an incredibly crude um, comparison sort of analogy. And then sort of in around the edge. Is the um, the area where um, the sort of the, the Serb Federation, um, which is called Serbska, 
and um, the sort of novel moves between these these two areas. And um, it was really important to me that the um, the sort of the, the police character um, inspector um, Simo, he's he's a Serb character, but he's also um, he wants to have um, he wants this sort of he wants this reckoning. He wants to find the missing and um, the the Bosniaks who've gone missing who haven't been found, and he's he's has this sort of this sense that um, that his kind of his missing friends and even those you know he hasn't known that he's sort of he's this this isn't finished and he wants to find closure for those families um and he's not a cop with a drinking problem he's a cop with a caffeine problem and um and and he's sort of he's in love with the beauty of his country he knows it's kind of as far as he's concerned it is the most beautiful country on earth and he's sort of incredibly sort of patriotic and um just loves Bosnia, Srpska, um, and yet is yeah devastated by by the past and and ultimately they can't sort of solve the case unless they the two of them team up together. And it's that kind of bringing together of the extremes as you say you've got Heather who sometimes wasn't even sure where she is and then you've got yeah. who's still living it every day was that there at the time knows the people involved and is determined to kind of get some kind of justice. Yeah. Um, so is there going to be another any Solomon's thriller? You said it was quite traumatic to, to, to write. Is there going to be further books? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think Polygon would like me to do another one, but I just, at this point, I, I, I'm not sure because I'm still, um, I can't talk about it yet, but um, I'm still kind of busy with aspects of the bone road in sort of other forms. So um, I'm kind of, I'm quite busy with that at the moment. Okay. Um, so I'll have to see how that goes and where that goes. Um, well, I won't ask you to expand. Anything. <laughs> I would say this, uh, the bone road would make a great uh, a television series or something like that, that kind of thing. Um, so is there anything you can tell us about that you're doing next or is it all kind of undercover at the minute? Well, um, I'm, 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 I'm busy with aspects of the bone road still and um, I'm working on another um, sort of edits of a sort of another piece of historical fiction called Fair Rosaline that will be out next July with um, Bonnie um, on their, um, I think it's on their mantle imprint. And yeah, so I'm just doing the edits of that. Um, and that's a, that's a retelling of um, Romeo and Juliet, but from um, Rosaline's point of view. And so, and in this version, um, Romeo um, Montague is, uh, is, a sort of the, is, a, is a sexual predator and is, the seducer of young girls and so and it's told from Rosaline Capulet's point of view the one who got away mm -hmm. and so it's a bit of a really sort of Romeo and Juliet really is a bit of a kind of gaslighting thriller um, 
where um, Rosaline is the teenager who got away. And can Rosaline save Juliet in time from this predatory um, Romeo? Well, that sounds amazing. And we have quite a lot of um, uh, writers or, or people who want to get into writing, watching these podcasts. As someone who's been doing it for so long, do you have any advice for prospective writers? Um, what's my advice? I think um, try and find the joy in it because um, sometimes it's sometimes it's hard. The the sort of work aspect of it can be hard. So I always try and find the joy in the sort of the the writing itself and try and find a good community of writers to support you because I think that um, although I've been doing it for so long for so much of the time I was so busy with kind of little children and being a mum as well um, that actually it's taken me a long time to find my kind of my my writer people and I'm so grateful now I've got them and they just want to support you um, and I'm so grateful for that and actually now kind of I am where I am I'm really happy to be there and able to kind of reach out and support other writers and that when somebody else is having a wobble to be able to say do you know what it will be okay like it's not okay today but it will be okay at some point and and I think and I think also just it is it's the joy of the joy of the craft and and I think we put so much pressure on ourselves and it's wonderful when you get published it's brilliant but I also think sometimes it's okay not to be um that not everybody sort of expects if they're they love playing in a band that they have to be the Rolling Stones. They just love playing with their friends. But somehow if we're writers, we think that the only route has to be publication. And I wish we could get back to the place where sometimes there's a sort of writer's equivalent of just playing with our friends and that being accepted and joyful and to just take great pleasure in that and for that to be that to be okay and us to be proud of that yeah that's really interesting because i think with other forms of art did you see people are allowed to paint and if they don't sell it doesn't matter you know they just love painting yeah. but there's something about writing have that... an exhibition and invite everyone you know around and you know crack up a bottle of wine and let everybody toast what you've achieved yeah. um and that's not to say don't try and get published and um and maybe you will and that's brilliant but if it doesn't happen that's not the end like that's not finished for you that doesn't mean don't write and that doesn't mean it's over and it doesn't mean that you're a bad writer one publishing so much of it is fashion and it's you know you know it hasn't met this this month sort of what they're looking for sometimes it is just literally this month it's so much about what everyone's looking for right now and just you know life is hard try and find the joy in what you're doing at the moment and I know it's that's a really hard thing to say when you've spent a year 18 months five years writing something 
Well, Natasha, I think that's great advice and it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Likewise. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. <laughs>